It's great to be with you this morning, an exciting morning in the life of City Church, exciting days in the life of City Church. We are thrilled to have uh, started our fish ponds site, and I've been there, and it's, uh, it's wonderful to be with a, a good crowd of people worshipping Jesus in a part of the city uh, where they weren't before. And seeing God's kingdom extend in that way is wonderful. Good too to see Alpha full of people seeking to find out more about Jesus. Uh, many, many things. I encounter, you could carry on. Encounter is wonderful. Just seeing folk who's, who've been trapped in all kinds of uh, challenging life situations coming to find more about Jesus. Now, in the midst of all these things, we are wanting to raise leaders. And we do that through some of our connect groups and some of those courses that we're running. Um, but also, we want to make uh, more elders. And elders are fathers in the church, uh, men who God has called to oversee, to help shape and to direct things around the life of the church, to really seek God as well for the future and direction of that, uh, of that and of the church, of us all together. And James and uh, Jamie, James uh, down in Cotton and Jamie in Bradley Stoke um, are not currently elders, although many of you probably think that they are, uh, but we've been working for uh, a year or two now with John Groves and Marion Groves, in fact, uh, towards uh, making James and Jamie elders. And so we're going to just let you know that that's the plan. And the plan, in fact, has a date attached to it. And on the 26th of April, what we'd like to do is recognize James and Jamie as elders. And John Groves will be here with us on that day, just talking to the church about what that means. And we'll be laying hands on them for eldership. But eldership is also something that the church recognizes together. Uh, it's not just someone decides arbitrarily these are the guys, but it's the thing that the church recognizes. And so what we would just say is, look, you've, there's a few weeks now and you've got some responsibility, firstly, to pray for them as they take on this leadership role in the life of the church. This is something they're doing on behalf of, of God, but also on behalf of you as a people. Um, they care deeply uh, for this church and for you uh, pastorally. And so we're going to recognize that publicly. If you want to make any comments about that, anything you'd like to say, any questions you have between now and that April date, then please do let us know. Our email address is obviously on the website, but you can contact us in all kinds of ways. So I just want to let you know about that. And I think it's a very exciting moment in the life of a church that it's producing leaders into the future. So that's an exciting moment. But this also is an exciting moment because this is our final outing into the Lord's Prayer. And so that's what we'll be looking at in the next few moments together. We come to the final verses of this fantastic prayer, this pattern for prayer that Jesus laid out for his disciples. And we find it there in Matthew uh, chapter 6 and in Luke 11. And we won't read it again today. Just say the, these final few words, and I'll read them, just these few words to you, are the conclusion of this prayer. And it goes like this. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, you might remember those words from school. I certainly do. Uh, but you might be looking in your Bible thinking, well, where, where are they? I'm not finding them in there. And uh, there is one of our challenges. Because if you, if you happen to have a King James version of the Bible, there they are. Uh, in other versions, they are not. And so someone might ask, and you might ask uh, with some feeling, well, wh where are they then? Uh, well, this is what's happened. So uh, the Bible is translated from many, many manuscripts. And those manuscripts are the early recordings of the words of Jesus and the Gospels themselves. Uh, and uh, what we know about these words at the end of this passage are that in the earliest manuscripts, we don't see those words, 
they, those words I just read to you, but in most of the manuscripts, we do see them. So in terms of, if you were to kind of work out your interpretation of this in terms of volume, you would include them. If you work out your interpretation in terms of which are the oldest ones, you might not include them. And so what translators tend to do is they put them in or they leave them out. Maybe they put them in as a footnote and then they explain why. And I've just done that to you. So there you go. But what this is, and uh, we'll leave behind some of the explanation and move into uh, something a bit more helpful, is this is a doxology. Uh, now that's like, what's a doxology? Well, I looked it up myself, in fact, but I, we find it in a number of places in the Bible. I'll read a couple more to you in a moment. But doxology is this. It is words of glory. And I love that. It's, these are words of glory. And what you have is a joining together of theological truth, and, and kind of inspiring uh, words put together in a way that we could remember really well. We find uh, another one of these in, in, uh, in Paul's writings in Romans chapter 11. Let me just read this to you. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. It's theology and poetry together. It's creative theology. And it helps us remember something of what God has done and who God is. Um, actually, songs do that for us, don't they? And I'm exciting as part of City Church. We have a songwriters group. Give us a wave if you're in the songwriters group. And those guys and girls are getting together to say, how can we make theology live? The, the truth is, of course, that you will probably forget this sermon by the time you've got halfway through your lunch that's the, that's the sad truth for us preachers to realize, but you won't forget the songs that we sing and the importance of theology that lives in the music that we sing, because that's what we will remember often, is, is very, very high indeed. And so just a great thanks to those guys who are spending time and energy and bringing their gifts to bear. And that's what they're doing. They're putting together words of glory. That's the, the best kind of songs do that for us. Another one that we can read is in Jude, right near the end of the Bible. To him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to pre present us uh, before his gracious presence without fault and with great joy. It's also usually a kind of conclusion to something. It's a way of drawing together a number of thoughts. And that's what we find here in Matthew's uh, accounts uh, of the Lord's Prayer. Yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It, it wants to be sung, doesn't it? I'm not going to do that, but it does want to be sung. And that, and that idea of bringing creativity together with theology is right through the Bible. You see it in the Psalms. You see it all through, really. And of course, as I've said, you see it in the, the way that we write songs, or some of us do even today. But what, do we, what, are, what is actually being said is a summary, really, of what we've been learning in the last few weeks. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power and the glory, and that forever and ever. Amen. We're going to be looking at those four things this morning. So firstly, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the kingdom. And the writer is reminding us that's the direction of our praying. These prayers are shaped, this prayer, our prayers, our prayer life, our experience of praying, our motives to pray, why it's shaped by God's kingdom and not, listen, and not by my wishes. The things I, I think I'd like this to happen in my life today and that's how my prayer life is shaped. And I think I've said it before in this series, sometimes, maybe even if I'm honest, often my prayer life is shaped by my wishes. 
I wish, I hope this could happen. And wouldn't it be nice if this happened? And I hope this doesn't happen. And that's how I pray. But this is a reminder here at the end of this prayer. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the kingdom. That's the focus of my praying. It's a reminder of how to pray. Um, sometimes it can be like, what can I get? What do I get God to do for me? What can I get him to do for me today? Uh, and if I pray really hard, maybe that will happen. And so my prayers become a list of requests and requirements from God to make my life more comfortable. And, and that becomes very insular, becomes very introverted. It, it's about the praying becomes about me and my stuff. And this reminder is yours is the kingdom. Your kingdom come, we started with, didn't we? And so this is a reminder about that. I think a, a fantastic passage also in Matthew chapter 6 that reminds us how, uh, how to order these things in our hearts and minds uh, is Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You bet it does. <laughs> but this is a reminder, that it's a reminder of two things. It's a reminder that God is concerned about the things that concern you. And of course, we know as we've looked at God as Father that he is concerned about the things that concern you. He cares deeply, passionately, and he's able to do something about them. But it also reminds us the order of things. It's to say, I'm worried about those things, but the right order is to be concerned about him and his kingdom first. Seek first his kingdom. These things follow behind. That's the right way to go about it. Uh, almost as if, well, if you want to get that stuff done, then seek God's glory. And God will add these things to you as well. In fact, it's exactly that in the passage. I think so many of us get those things the other way around, thinking, when God sorts my life out and the things I'm concerned about, then I'll be concerned, that then I'll get on with the kingdom stuff. And actually, God says, no, no, other way around. God first. Now, Jesus said this in John chapter 14, Truly I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these he will do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, a reminder from Jesus, it's about him and his glory. It's about what he um, is about. It's about his, the extension of his kingdom. And Jesus is saying, "And use my name. It's in my name that you go. Um, it's my kingdom. The kingdom is, is under Jesus' authority. But listen, sometimes we, use, we could use Jesus' name as if it's a kind of a magic code word. If I shout in Jesus' name loud enough, I can force the issue and get my prayer answered. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying it's his kingdom. And that's why we ask things in his name. Because that's our authority our authority to extend his kingdom is his name. Jesus also said this, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but my Father who dwells in me uh, does his work. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. Jesus even himself is saying, I'm doing it on behalf of somebody else too. He's saying, I'm, I'm coming in my Father's authority. 
And so we see Jesus acting in the Father's authority and us acting in Jesus' authority. So when we come in Jesus' name, we are coming to extend his kingdom, just as Jesus himself was doing, to extend his Father's rule and reign on the earth. Jesus is saying, I'm here under the authority of my Father. I'm working in his name. I'm making a way for you to act in my name, under my authority. Now let's read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting us uh, as, uh, with the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors, as if God were making his appeal through us. So God is saying, go and extend my kingdom as ambassadors for me. Go and work on my behalf. Now, when an ambassador turns up in a new city or a new country, what do they do? Well, I'll tell you what they don't do. They don't arrive in the new country and begin to build their own kingdom. They are there. They are only there, in fact, under the authority of the kingdom and the king or the nation that they've been sent from. That's how it works. It would be a very strange thing for them to pitch up and start talking about themselves. They're talking about the nation that they've been sent from and for us, the kingdom they've been sent from. So what's our job in terms of, of a prayer life then? Well, our job is to discern what is God doing? What's God about? What's he concerned with? Because that's the kingdom authority that we come with. And as we do that, we find from that Matthew passage we started with, well, guess what? Other things get themselves lined up behind that. And we would expect that to happen. Why? Because yours is the kingdom. It belongs to him. Now, you may have heard this phrase from time to time, being on the wrong side of history or being on the right side of history. And politicians often use that phrase uh, in a disparaging way about people who believe something different from them. They say, ah, oh, your policies, they're on the wrong side of history or your belief system is on the wrong side of history. Listen, why would I even mention that? Well, the extension of God's kingdom is on the right side of history. It's easy for us to get caught up in the swell of news and information and all the rest of it uh, that's around us in our culture and forget that the earth exists for God's glory. It's here to see his kingdom come. We can feel as if sort of God's kingdom is sort of a sideline issue and the rest of history kind of marches on. Actually, that's not what the Bible teaches us. It says it's all here for him. It's all about him and to him and through him. All things are for him. And so when we say yours is the kingdom, we're expressing a belief that God's kingdom is in fact coming, in reality, that it's coming. We read in, in Habakkuk, this, this, this prophet from the Old Testament says this, and it's a famous verse that we'll remember and you'll know it, but it sums this up really well. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's kingdom is coming. How do the waters cover the sea? Absolutely, completely, without question. Every nook and cranny is filled. The sea, well, no, it's the sea. It's covered. That's how God's glory, the knowledge of God, will cover the earth like that. It's coming. It's inevitable. It's where history is leading. And when we say yours is the kingdom and pray in Jesus' name, we're saying and reminding ourselves of these things. So that doxology that ends of this prayer begins with a reminder yours is the kingdom we're here for you it's about you our lives make sense they line up well when we say it's about you 
The next thing that we read is this. Yours is the power. Yours is the power. An expectation in our prayers, in our lives, in fact, that we are shaped and ordered by the power of God himself. So here's a question for you. What do you think God will do? What do you think God will do in your lifetime, in your family, through your contribution, through our church? What do you think God will do? It's, a, it's an interesting question, I think. And sometimes, I think even in my own reply, um, I, I'm, you know, th- there are some challenges in terms of what do I, re- you know, if I'm honest, what do I really think God will do? It might be a complex answer if it's anything like mine. Well, I do believe God can do anything. But I, but I think he'll probably act in this way and maybe not in that way because that's normally how things work. Does God actually work according to his power? Does he do that? And the Bible again and again, story after story, character after character, letter after letter is reminding us, yes, he absolutely does. God works powerfully. And I think just even some of the stories I've heard this week uh, from the encounter meeting and other uh, things that God's doing around the church, life of the church, you realize, wow, why are we not hearing about this a bit more? God is working powerfully in the lives of people all around us. And even sometimes when you think back and recall through your own life, there are remarkable moments, absolutely standout, remarkable moments of God's powerful, dramatic intervention in your life that change everything. I've had conversations like that even in the last week or two. But we quickly forget. Guess what? This prayer is yours is the power. That's a reminder. Yours is the power. God's power is at work. I'm reminding myself that it's at work. I don't want to forget it. It's too easy to forget, to think that things just tumble along as usual and then, and then I'm reminded, my goodness, God does work powerfully. Maybe my prayers could be shaped by an expectation of his power. Yours is the power speaks about authority. When we say it's yours, we're reminding ourselves that we're his children under his authority. We seek to do his will, to live according to his word. Uh, in, in Psalm 40, David says, it's my delight to do your will. I'm delighted to do it, um, submitting himself to God's ultimate authority. And Paul in Ephesians 3 writes this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work with us, to him be glory in the church and, Christ, and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Paul is saying he is able to do immeasurably more than you can comprehend It's to him that we focus our attention. It's to him that we pray. Let's offer prayers that are in accordance with God's power and glory as we are told to and reminded to at the end of this prayer. Do you know what helps us? Praying and worshiping like this helps us. So if you're thinking, I don't have a great deal of expectation of God's intervention and power in my life, how's your prayer life? How's your worship life going? Because God has given us everything we need. And if, it's just, if, if that kind of powerful intervention of God is really just a matter of me praying and looking for God to work, is it a matter of me focusing on God's glory in the morning? And if, my, if, I, if I walk through the front door, I walk out the front door, go to work, having been in the presence of God, my expectation of what he will do is much, much higher. Yours is 
the plow, yours is the power. Thirdly, uh, there is this desire for God's praise. It says, yours is the glory. Uh, I, this is wonderful. Yours is the glory. Listen, everything exists to the praise of his glory. Everything exists. Every person, everything, every planet, every star, every sun, the whole cosmos is what? It's for the praise of his glory. Sometimes we wonder, what's it all for? This vast universe, and sometimes we've talked about the numbers and the distance of stars and the, the number of galaxies and all the rest of it. What's it for? It's for the praise of his glory. It's telling a story of his might and power. Yours is the glory. We're reminded ourselves of that. Um, and in Ephesians 1, we read this. In him we have obtained an, an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. It's you. You are to the praise of his glory. That's why you exist. That's why we're on the planet. You are to the praise of his glory. But it goes on. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Why? To the praise of his glory. It's one of the phrases that Paul comes back to again and again, to remind us of what it's for. What does this do for us if we pray like this? It gets our heads out of our own problems, focuses it on him. This is a, a hugely pastoral moment. We're like, what, what's all this praise and glory? It reminds you that the earth is here for a different purpose than just to make your life easier. That God exists, his intervention in our lives are what? It's for the praise of his glory. So often pastorally, some of the answers for people who are struggling is, have you thought about helping somebody else T to get the focus out and, and beyond yourself, to love others, to love God, and to, and to do that actively? And this helps us with that. Why? Because it's for him, for his glory. Psalm 8 reminds us so graphically. It's again David. You can imagine David on a hillside uh, kind of worshipping, uh, looking around himself, seeing what God had done. And he says this, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory where? Above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established praise because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you've set in place, and he goes on, and he says, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes among the paths of the sea, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. He's saying it all exists for the praise of his glory. And uh, I think one of the sad things for people who don't have a faith in God is you look at some of these majestic vistas that God has created. Maybe you've been somewhere like that. You've seen a, a, a fantastic waterfall or you've seen a, a mountain range that leaves you staggering. There's no one to thank it takes the edge off of it, to be honest. It takes some of the wonder out of it. It's like, my father did that. Thank you, thank you, thank you to the praise of his glory. Yours is the glory. We are acknowledging when we pray like that, his preeminence in the cosmos. Yours is the glory. That star, those incredible vistas, that's for you. It's showing us something about who you are. Someone said this, I read it recently, I thought it was a great quote. It's amazing how much you can achieve 
when you don't care who gets the credit. I, can't, I think it was one of the politicians recently said that. And I think there's, there's some real truth in that. It is amazing how much you can achieve when you don't care about getting the credit yourself, which is what he's really saying. But here, I want to just change that quote slightly. It's amazing how much you can achieve if you're happy for God to be glorified. If you're happy for it all to be about him, if you're happy for me to become less and for him to come, become more, if you're happy for the praise of his glory to resonate through a city, through your own life, if your life will really point to him, it's amazing what you can achieve. It really is incredible. Why? Because it's all for the praise of his glory. And we're being reminded of that in this prayer. And the, the final part of this doxology, the fourth part, is this. Forever and ever and ever. Amen. We are resting in God's eternal nature. God is forever. This kingdom that God is building, that we've been praying about, that we've been focusing on, saying this is the direction of our lives, is forever and ever. Listen, it's not temporary. It's not fading. It's not limited. It doesn't require outside intervention. It's not aging. It's not ailing. It is forever and forever and forever. And that's why we pray it, to remind ourselves. It reminds ourselves to, uh, I am temporary. I, I have a beginning and an end. That's hard for me to think of things that don't have a beginning and an end. But actually, God is like that. He is the I am. He is now and he was and he is to come. And we're reminding ourselves, I am worshipping a transcendent being that is beyond my own experience and is powerful beyond anything I could possibly imagine. And it's for him. It's forever and forever and forever. Now, how do we even begin to think about this? This is a difficult one for us. And if this is the final moment of this final moment in the prayer, we ought to think about it a little bit. Now, I think the disciples had a bit of a moment of this. And in Matthew 17, uh, we, we, are, we are told about the, what's called the transfiguration. Let me just read it to you. It's starting at verse uh, verse 1. After six days, Jesus uh, took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Just then, there appeared with him Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter, our dear friend Peter, said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, we'll put up some shelters. Let's have a camp, says Peter. <laughs> Let's all go to West Point. No, he's just saying, uh, no, he's, he's basically losing it. Why? Because he's in the presence of eternity. Jesus is transfigured and Moses and Elijah appear with him. He's just getting a glimpse into the forever and the forever and he's undone by it. Let me make these shelters, says Peter. One for you, one for Moses and Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. A voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love, and in him I am well pleased. Listen to him. The voice of God himself, it would seem. Disciples heard this. They fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus. And what, what do we learn from this? We learn something about the nature of glory. It is not eternity, or rather the nature of eternity. It's not about longness. It's just a really, really long time. It's about quality. It's about glory. 
And they are, in these moments of glory, Peter and James and John, they're looking beyond the immediate. They're seeing something of an eternal God, an eternal nature, and they're being drawn into it. And it, it is overwhelming for them. And there is something about God's eternal nature that is overwhelming. And yet, we find even in this passage, it is somewhat accessible for us. And for us to at least begin to allow ourselves to think, wow, I'm part of something that goes on forever and forever. And when we think about life ending and we think about kind of cultures and, 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 and countries and kingdoms coming to nothing, which they all will do eventually, it is of great security to remember, no, his kingdom is forever and forever and forever. We are children of a father who lasts for all eternity. So when we, when we come to the end of this prayer and we read this doxology together, we are reminded again, this is supposed to not just be the words that we say, but this shapes and informs our thinking and our praying. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power and the glory and that forever and forever and forever. It should inspire worship within us. In fact, it is worship. It's worship, it's creativity, it's theology living. Um, I encourage you to do that in your own prayer life. I encourage that to do it in your connect groups. I encourage you songwriters again, let theology live so that we can enjoy it together, full with the creative gift that you have. Amen. You can come up now. <laughs> Is that all right? How long was it? 31, pretty good. Hope so. It's not bad for words that aren't even in the Bible, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, don't tell anyone.